We are beginning a new series for the summer. Uh, we went a little bit long on Colossians. I tried to do it quickly, but there was a couple more sermons in there we just had to do. So we just wrapped up Colossians. We're starting a summer in Psalms. Why a summer in Psalms? Well, I'm going to... Uh, I, I really couldn't come up with an, a description of the Psalms better than uh, George Horn. Um, he was a writer, a uh, commentary writer, pastor... 1730 to 1792 wrote commentary on the entire Psalms, and uh, you can still get this commentary in full online. And uh, in his introduction, or several pages in, this is how he speaks of the Psalms and sort of speaks to why we're doing it this summer. Composed upon particular occasions, yet designed for general use, delivered out as service for Israelites under law, yet no less adapted to the circumstances of Christians under the gospel. The Psalms present religion to us in the most engaging dress, communicating truths which philosophy could never investigate, in a style which poetry could never equal. While history is made the vehicle of prophecy and all creation lends its charms to paint the glories of redemption, calculated alike to profit and to please, They inform the understanding, elevate the affections, and entertain the imagination. Delivered under God, to whom all hearts are known and all events foreknown, they suit mankind in all situations, grateful as the manna which descended from above and conformed itself to every taste. The fairest productions of human wit, after a few perusals, like gathered flowers, wither in our hands and lose their fragrance. But these unfading plants of paradise become, as we are accustomed to them, still more beautiful. Their blooms appear to be daily enlightened. Fresh odors are emitted and new sweets extracted from them. Anyone who has once tasted their excellencies will desire to taste them yet again, and whoever tastes them the most often will relish them best. That's why we're doing the Psalms. They are this just incredible summation of the glory of who Jesus and who God is and this glorious summation of the message of the scripture. And you can find essentially all of the doctrine and all of the theology and all of the characteristics and all of the plan of God in the Psalms, but written in such a way that is captivating and engaging, just as George has written here. And we best understand the Psalms when we relate to the psalmist or to the writer and that's what makes them so effective. Because as we read the Psalms, as we read these songs, and as we read these poems, we are meant to put ourselves in the place of the writer, in the place of the psalmist, and understand the scripture, and understand the doctrine, and understand the characteristics of God through the perspective of those writers, and through the perspective of those poet, poets. And so our job when reading the Psalms is to relate to them, and put ourselves in them. And in relating to the Psalms, we will reap the greatest reward. For instance, in Psalm 56, we encounter fear and how we are to face our fear. In Psalm 40, it's a testimony of the psalmist being set free from irresistible desires and addiction. Or Psalm 42 deals with depression. And Psalm 90 instructs us in growing old and approaching the end of life. Psalm 139 is a study on loneliness and the persistent presence of God. Psalm 55 deals with bitterness. 
that we may have towards others in whom we trusted. And I, I could go through all 150 Psalms because they are all useful and they're all relevant to us today and the challenges that we face today. And that's why we spend this summer in the Psalms. Because in them, you can find the teaching and the wisdom and the inspiration and the encouragement that you need to face the things that you're facing. It's all there in the Psalms. And there's many ways that you could categorize the 150 Psalms, uh, but one way that's effective for us today is to see that almost all of them fall into three broad categories. There are the Psalms of disorientation, and you maybe think of a few of them when I describe it. The Psalms of disorientation are, are those in which we find the writer of the Psalm is puzzled and, and perplexed and, and confused by what is happening in his life and in his soul. And so he's writing to express his disorientation and his confusion at what is going on. And then there's the Psalms of reorientation, which quite often follow the Psalms of disorientation, where, where the writer or the poet finds answers to his questions and he gains insight and understanding and is able to fix his eyes once again on God. Those are the Psalms of reorientation. And then, kind of scattered throughout the book of Psalms, spread throughout the book, there's also Psalms of orientation. And the Psalms of orientation are given to us to provide a foundational understanding of our relationship to God in the world. The orientation psalms are established for us the right frame of reference for our life in the world and teach us the basic wisdom we need to live rightly before God, even in our fallen state, in spite of our sin. And Psalm 19, which is the one we're going to start with today, is one of those orienting psalms. It's one of those ones that sets the framework and points us right. It's kind of one of those North Star orienting compassed psalms that will point us in the right direction and get our frame of reference correct. C.S. Lewis, who probably many of you know is an author of the Narnia series and books like that, he was actually a professor, uh, a doctor of medieval literature. And so he knew a little bit about writing, ancient writing. And what he said was of Psalm 19, he said, I take this to be one of the greatest poems in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. Which kind of rings a bell as what George Horn said, that the Psalms are calculated alike to profit and to please. And Psalm 19 is one of those. As beautiful as it is, Psalm 19 establishes for us a proper source of knowledge, a proper source of revelation, of wisdom, of learning about God and about ourselves. And that's why I wanted to start here, because we're not going to get anywhere else in the Psalms. We're not going to get anywhere else in Scripture. We're not going to get anywhere else in our life until we get a proper orientation on who God is and what he's saying to us and how we can know that. That is the fundamental bedrock of our faith and how we will have any knowledge or any wisdom. Because we are, all of us, people that are seeking answers. We are seeking answers every minute of every day. We are searching for answers to a lot of different questions and problems in life. We have questions about our marriages. We have questions about our kids, about our finances, about our feelings, about illness we're suffering, about wounds that have been done to us, hurts, our relationships, why we're here, what we're supposed to be doing. These questions that we have are not small. We are questioning people, and unless we know and get straight the source of knowledge, then the answers to our questions are not going to be right. We're searching for wisdom. We're searching for clarity. We're searching for rest and refreshment and joy and happiness and ultimately redemption. 
And the source of those answers in our life is what Psalm 19 reveals to us. It establishes for us the right alignment we should have in order to gain that knowledge that we seek. And so if you get the building block of this psalm established in your life, then much of your life will be made. You'll have the answers to those questions. You'll you'll have a sense of where God is taking you and what he means for you and, and all those things that sort of perplex us on a daily basis. And so let's look at Psalm 19 and see how it orientates us. Psalm 19, chapter, or verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the ends of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. As we start this series on the Psalms, Lord, I pray that By your Holy Spirit, we would understand what you are saying to us through your psalmist. This writer is communicating clearly your revelation to us. And that we would understand where we need to go to find the answers that we seek. To find the wisdom that we need. To find the truth that will set us free. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So the first thing is, we're going to sort of break this into three sections, which is... uh, There's a general revelation of God, there is a specific revelation of God, and then there is an explanation of how that revelation applies to us in our uh, our redemption or in our life. And so as we go through these different sections, we'll sort of have a picture of how God is speaking to us and how we are meant to react to that. And so the first part of the psalm speaks to the the marvelous reality of a self-revealing God. It says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork, and day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. Now, I don't know, some of you might remember, and I was very excited about this when I was younger, um, the launching of the Hubble Space Telescope. Because when you're on Earth and you're trying to look at the universe, you're... You can only look so clearly optically because the atmosphere keeps rippling and shifting and there's the depth of the atmosphere and, and it warps what you look at. So, so 
telescopes on Earth can't see as clearly as a telescope in space. So I remember back, I think it was like 89 or maybe it was 91, I can't remember, they launched the Hubble Space Telescope and I was, I subscribed to Scientific American and all those nerdy things. But I was like super excited about what this telescope was going to be able to see. Anyway, it turned out to have a flaw in the lens, which they had to fix, but it still sees better than any telescope on Earth. And one of the things that it did just a few years into its life, it took a picture. It was a, it's called the Hubble Deep Field Photograph. And it's a 10-day long exposure taken in 1995. And it covers one twenty-four millionth of the whole sky, which if you picture a tennis ball at the end of a football field, okay, so you know how big a tennis ball is, take it 100 meters out, and that is the angular width of the picture that it took, one twenty-four millionth of the sky. And nobody really thought anything of significance would be found in this 10-day exposure of that blank, dark piece of sky. In fact, this photograph almost didn't happen. The only reason that the HDF... Sorry, that's the Hubble Deep Field Photograph. Nerds have an acronym for it. But the only reason that the HDF got taken was because the director of the Hubble Space Telescope program has about 18 discretionary days that he can use however he wants. And so this guy, Robert Williams, he decides to use up more than half of his discretionary Hubble time to take this picture. And he did this even though an advisory board of scientists had already considered the idea of the HDF and they concluded that they did not expect the HDF to reveal any new population of galaxies. And it was an empty patch of sky. If you look in, on the slide, there's this empty spot, uh, and there's, there's nothing there. It's just, it's just blank sky, as far as our telescopes could tell. But inside that empty patch of sky, which is one twenty-four millionth part of the whole sky, this is what the 10-day exposure revealed. That's what's in there. The HDF revealed over 3,000 objects, almost every single one of which is another galaxy. Those aren't stars. Those are galaxies. 3,000 galaxies in one twenty-four millionth of our sky. And it's like that in every direction. They took the same picture in the south, same thing. Same distribution, same density. Every 24 millionth of our sky, which appears empty, actually contains 3,000 other galaxies somewhere far out there. And so I just do quick napkin math. 24 millionth of our sky by 3,000 galaxies is 72 billion galaxies that are visible from our planet with a 10-day exposure. And so you can't even talk about the numbers when you talk about the size and composition and mass of this universe that God has created for us. Like, it literally blows our mind, right? This was a great day for Carl Sagan because he could say billions and billions and billions and billions, and he could add billions onto the number of times he said that. You guys don't remember Carl Sagan? That's a nerd joke, sorry. <laughs> but our universe, when the writer of the psalm writes this, that the heavens declare the glory of God, could not comprehend to what extent the glories of God would be revealed over time. As we could look deeper and deeper and deeper into creation and understand just how glorious our God is. The heavens declare the weight of God's glory. 
Now I think if man had not sinned, if, if we were not blinded by our own foolishness, if our hearts were not hardened towards God by our sin, then we might not need any other revelation than this. Just creation itself would speak so plainly of God that we would respond in worship. And in fact, even fallen sinners, and even in a fallen world, people see things like this and they look up at the night sky and they instinctively worship because the heavens declare the glory of God. And it's this very point that Paul is making in Romans chapter 1. He says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. And so they are without excuse. We are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God, nor give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Isn't that a picture of who we are? We have the glory of creation around us. We have billions upon billions of galaxies with billions upon billions of stars, a universe created for us that we cannot fathom, and yet we darken our hearts and turn from God, as evident as He is. And yet the heavens continue to declare, to demonstrate, to preach of the existence of God to all people without needing any language or speech. It says there in verse 3, There is no speech and there are no words whose voice is not heard. Creation doesn't need language. And so it doesn't matter what language you speak, what ethnicity you're from, from what part of the world you're standing on some rock and looking up at the sky. God is preaching to everybody through His creation the evidence of His existence. It doesn't matter if all preaching ceased so that even if everyone was silent and all human testimony of God stopped, still the heavens and creation would not stop proclaiming His power and His majesty and His right to be worshipped. Luke 19 says, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. These are the people who were praising Jesus. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples for saying these things. And He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would cry out. Creation will reveal God and He will be praised. In fact, Paul quotes this exact psalm. He quotes Psalm 19 in his letter to Rome, talking about bringing the message of God to the people. He says in Romans 10, So faith comes through hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. And here he quotes Psalm 19. For their voice has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. This is the same God who reveals himself in the majesty of creation, is also the covenant God. He's the personal redeeming God who reveals his will and his intention towards us in his word. And so in the first part of the psalm, you have this amazing testimony of how creation and the heavens speak to the glory of God and how everybody should understand who God is just by what creation reveals. But God has not only revealed himself without voice, God has actually spoken to us through his prophets. And so the psalm goes on to talk about how God has spoken to us so that we do not have to think that God is distant or that think that God is unreachable or God is unknowable or that God is not personal because He has actually spoken to us with words. Not just revealed Himself in the heavens, but revealed Himself in Scripture. I just recently ran across, as I was online following some links, and I ran across a blog posting on the Internet just recently. I can't remember whether it was earlier this week or last week. 
but it was from a minister of some sort in another part of Ontario. I didn't notice what denomination he was from. But in his blog, he was, he was talking about why he had decided to still call himself a Christian. And in it, he made all sort of the normal points that he was writing about, you know, the confusion around labels and how words are used differently. And so he wasn't sure whether people understood what he meant by Christian and how he should identify himself. And, you know, it was kind of out there on the edge, but I was, I was with him through most of it. I, 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 you know, but in the end, he felt it was important that he continue to identify himself as Christian. And I was with him up until that point in his article. And then in the last three paragraphs, he said something to the effect of, Christianity was still a useful worldview among many others, and how he found the label useful for the promotion of justice and a framework for living in his own life. And he completely lost me. Like, I was baffled. I was confused, because I thought this was a Christian pastor who was writing this blog to his congregation, and I was stunned. I was just so curious, because he said he was a pastor of a church, and so I had to know. And so I asked him, was, was Christianity just another worldview among many? I mean, was Jesus just this ancient guy with a progressive worldview that 2,000 years later now this pastor has affirmed was an enlightened way of looking at the world and that Jesus was just ahead of his time and now sort of has the blessing of this pastor to say, yeah, I I guess I'll call myself a Christian because this Jesus guy has a good worldview. Like, like that's how it came across. And and I won't bore you with the details of the conversation because trust me, the Internet is not well designed for a meaningful conversation. But in the end... He never could. I was gracious. I didn't embarrass anybody. Don't worry. But, but in the end, he never could answer my question satisfactorily. And, and, and I, I bring this up right now because this is the fundamental difference between Christianity and all other religions. Christianity is not a worldview. A worldview is something we develop in order to make sense of what we see in the world. There, you come up with a worldview to try to make sense of what's going on around you. Right? You're in those disorienting psalms. You don't understand what's going on, and so you try to create a worldview of how things operate. And so it's something we develop for us to understand. But Christianity is the revelation of scriptures which are delivered to us by God exactly so that we don't have to make up worldviews in the dark. We can know God and we can know reality because He has revealed Himself to us. He's not something we have discovered. He has revealed Himself to us. And so Christianity is not a worldview. It's not just something that's convenient to, f- to structure our life around. Christianity is the revelation of the God of the universe to us about what he has really done for us. It's not a worldview. In Acts 17, 26 to 27, Luke writes, and he addresses this, he says, And he made from one man every nation of mankind that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him. Grope for him and find him. That's what worldviews are. Worldviews and religions are the seeking and the groping of fallen man, not realizing that God has revealed himself fully in creation and in scripture so that we can know him and know ourselves and be set free from groping after our own ideas of what the world should be or how we're supposed to make sense of the world. Christianity is God's revelation to us. Scripture is God's revelation to us. He's not just revealed himself in the stars and in creation. He's revealed himself in his word. So we don't have to grope in the dark. We don't have to find a framework to make sense of things. He's provided it for us. I've got to keep moving here, but this is the revelation of Scripture. And this is what it does. 
He writes, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Is there anybody here who needs to be revived? Are you broken down? Are you disheartened? Are you worn out? Are you tired? Are you discouraged? The psalmist here says God's word is perfect. And in its, and in its perfection, it revives us. When you read the word of God, you don't have to try and sort through what is right and wrong or what's wise or what's foolish. It's perfect. It's right. You can lean into the word of God without fear and be refreshed. Whether it's Psalms or Proverbs or Ruth or Hosea or John or Colossians, it's all perfect. If you want refreshment, if you're needing refreshment in your life, this is the reward that God holds out for you. Not just that He is a God that created this, you created this earth, created this universe as a God that is, is worthy of, of majesty and worthy of worship, but He has given you a, a revelation in Scripture for your refreshment, a perfect word. If you want refreshment, come to the Word of God for refreshment. And then the psalmist goes on. He says, The testimony of the Lord is sure, making the wise simple. Making wise the simple. Don't we have a need for wisdom? You know, wasn't Solomon right on the money when the thing that he asked God to give him was wisdom? So many, almost all of our life troubles and wounds are self-inflicted, aren't they? When we look back, we realize that we lacked the wisdom to avoid the harm that we caused ourselves. We caused the hurt in our life out of our own foolishness. Or the hurt and wounds in our life were caused because of someone else's foolishness. If we look at the hurts and the wounds and the struggles in our life, somebody somewhere was foolish, and if we'd been a little more wise, we would have been able to avoid that conflict. right? We would have been able to avoid that trouble. And right now... We're currently embroiled in conflicts that we lack the wisdom to see the end of, or we're caught up in tangles and nets of deception or misunderstanding or emotions that we lack the wisdom to sort out. And so the psalmist writes here, he says, the simple can be made wise in the revelation of God. The testimony of the Lord is sure. God has revealed His wisdom in His Word. If you're looking for wisdom, then immerse yourself in the Scriptures. It's certain. It's sure. It's a steady, steadfast foundation. It makes us dummies wise. That's the power of it. You know, have you ever talked to another brother or sister in the church? You've just run into somebody and you've gone to them with a problem and, 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 and you sat down and had a coffee with them and you've just been blown away with the wisdom of their counsel. Right? They've sat down and they've talked to you and, 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 and they could just bring clarity to your situation and you were amazed by the counsel that they gave you. If you stop and think about a time like that when a brother or sister spoke into your life, I would bet that you went to them in the first place because you saw them as someone maybe more mature than you, maybe farther down the path in their faith, maybe someone more rooted in Scripture than you, more rooted in the Gospel and in the wisdom of God. And so you went to them, and you were right to go to them because the wisdom and the clarity that they had to you came straight from the time that they spent in Scripture, from them being a people that were immersed and meditating on the Word of God. Because we are not wise. We are dummies. We do not have wisdom apart from the Scriptures. This book, God's Scriptures, God's Word can make you wise. If you knew me as a youth, you would agree. Because I might have thought I was a pretty clever guy, but I was foolish, foolish, foolish. And I'm not much less foolish today. But any wisdom that I have, trust me, comes from Scripture. I have no wisdom of my own. Every single situation that I go into. I am depending on what this book tells me. 
is right and wise and on nothing else. If it wasn't for Scripture, I would have nothing worthwhile to say. And if you come to my office and you ask for my help, if I'm not speaking Scripture to you or it doesn't resonate with you as coming from Scripture, then ignore it because I'm not saying anything useful to you. In fact, the first time you come to my office, probably what I will tell you is what I tell every single person. I'll give you all a free counseling session right now. Are you struggling right now in your marriage? Are you struggling with self-doubt? Are you struggling with loneliness? Are you struggling in relationships? Here's what you need to do. Read your Bible and pray every day. That's it. Until you're reading your Bible and praying every day, then don't expect any wisdom. You go 10 days without reading your Bible, you have 10 days of stupid. Okay? You go a month without reading your Bible, you're three times stupider. Right? It's not hard, folks. This is what the psalmist is saying. God has revealed himself in his creation and he's revealed himself in his scripture. And the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. You want wisdom, be in the word of God. And if you don't understand it, then be smart enough to go to somebody who is deeper and maybe steeped a little longer in the word of God than you and have them help you understand it and listen to their counsel that comes from the word. Find an elder, find like Jim Cowling or somebody genius like that who's like super wise. He will help you. That's where you got to go. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. I know that many of you are looking for joy. You're looking for joy in your marriage. You're looking for joy in your work. You're looking for joy in your own inner mind and in your own emotions even. You're just trying to find joy in yourself. But God not only gives us His law and His testimony, but He also gives us His precepts. The law sets the boundaries for us. The testimony of God is a witness or a description of what life is like under the law. But the precepts of the Lord are the application of the law and the application of the testimony. It's how the Word of God can be used to transform our lives. And that results in joy. Listen, if you want to be unhappy, there is an easy way to be unhappy. Just think wrongly about everything. Think about yourself in a wrong way. Think about others in a wrong way. Think about God in a wrong way. Get everything upside down and twisted. Put yourself ahead of others and put God last. Put the world first. Misunderstand your wife or, you know, be confused about your husbands or kids. Just get everything out of alignment and I guarantee you'll be unhappy. But if you want joy, then put things right. And it says the precepts of the Lord are right. So take your wrong precepts, which have not been working out for you, and throw those out and take God's right precepts and stick them in your head and stick them in your heart and watch your joy grow. Because I know that there are... Well, all of us are seeking joy, and we should. We're built for joy. God created us to rejoice, to worship in Him. We're built for joy. So joy is not a bad thing, and I know you're seeking joy. So if you want joy, it says here, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. So if you're looking for joy, be in the Word of God. Be in the revelation of God. God has not made joy something that you can't find. He's put it right here in your Scriptures. Just read them. And then he says, the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. My goodness, we need enlightenment as much as wisdom. Our understanding is often so dark, we don't even have the right information to work with. I mean, just look at the world of politics right now, or foreign affairs, or some of the laws that are being passed in our country. 
Look at the things that our culture is celebrating. There is confusion and misinformation everywhere. Or we can even look closer to home at the policies of our school boards or the decisions people in our own community and our own family are making. And they are making decisions in the dark. And some of us can see the darkness that they're making those decisions in. And they're putting their hope in things that will ultimately fail them. And we need light to penetrate into that darkness of our culture. And we need light to penetrate into that darkness of our community so that people can see their way out. And they can see what they have walked in for so long in that darkness. If you feel like you're groping in the dark without answers, if you feel like you just can't figure it out, or you've been treasuring something in the dark without realizing how ugly it is, then meditate on the Scripture, on the revelation of God. It is pure, and it will bring light to what is impure and set you free of it. So often we treasure something in the dark. right? We have this little secret thing that we have, and we covet it in the dark, and, and we just love this little thing, and as long as it's dark, it's great. But if light was shed on it, we would be ashamed of how ugly and horrific that thing is that we're coveting in the dark. And so the word of God, the revelation of God sheds light, just like that sun that comes out of his chamber like a bridegroom and runs across the sky like a strong runner, sheds light and no one can escape its heat. The revelation of God, the revelation of his scripture is like that sun and it shines into the darkness and it reveals the things that we covet wrongly and that need to be exposed. And it brings enlightenment to the things that we just don't understand because we're in confusion and we're in the dark about. So if you need enlightenment... Go to the revelation of God. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The psalmist goes on, still talking about this revelation of God that we have in Scripture. He says, The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forevers. Oh, that clean feeling. Spiritual cleanliness. How many times have we gone through seasons where we just felt nothing but shame or we just felt unclean? Maybe you're feeling that way today. And you look back over the last few weeks or you look back over the last few months or maybe you look back over the last few years and you just feel shame at your weakness or shame at your sinfulness. And the psalm takes a different turn here and it says, the fear of the Lord is clean. Being in awe of God, the acknowledgement of God as God, the honoring of God, ultimately our obedience to God is clean. The psalmist is saying, put God in His proper place. Put God where God is supposed to be. Worship Him. Adore Him. Fear Him. Obey Him. And that shame is lifted. It just melts away. The shame gets taken away by your Redeemer. It goes on, the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. So it's talking here now. The psalmist is talking in all of these verses. He's talking about the revelation of God in Scripture. His precepts. His testimony. His law. His commandments. And then he says... Ultimately, this is what it's all about. Treasure this Word of God. Treasure the Scriptures. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings from the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them there is great reward. All of these verses are saying the same thing. They're saying treasure the Word of God, that the God of the universe would reveal Himself to us and give us laws and give us commandments and precepts and testimony to order our lives by, to be able to know what is right and wrong, what is light and what is dark, what is truth or what is a lie. That's amazing that God has revealed Himself not only in creation, but God has actually spoken to us through His prophets and through His Son. And through His apostles, He's given us words in writing that we have. That He has revealed Himself that we would know all of these things. 
You don't have to grope in the dark for a worldview that somehow makes sense. Because God has given you the truth in Scripture. And it sits there on our bedside table or in the drawer for weeks on end. And we have it here. The revelation of God. It's amazing. It's glorious. We look at that picture of the Hubble Deep Field photograph, right? And, and, and our hearts just kind of swell with worship. And the psalmist here is saying, that's what Scripture should do. When you look at creation and you just go, wow, God is amazing. Look at this. I just feel like worshiping God. And then you see your Bible on the table and you don't react the same way. The psalmist would say that's incongruent. You can't worship the night sky and not be amazed by the Scripture. Because it's God's revelation. And so when you see your Bible line there, you should be saying, that is amazing. That's like 372 billion galaxies of amazing wonder in that Scripture there. That's how our heart should be tuned to the treasure of the Word of God. It says, more desired are they, it's the Scriptures, than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings from the honeycomb. Do you treasure the Word of God like that? Is that how your heart is tuned to Scripture? And mine's not all the time. I'm not up here saying I'm like prime example, okay? Like sometimes I open up my Bible and I'm like, I read three lines and I'm, you know, thinking about the next Star Trek movie or something. Right? Like that's how it is sometimes. But then there's other times when you pray and you ask God to reveal Himself in His Scriptures and you open them up and you say, God, show me Your commandments, show me Your precepts. Like even just here with Psalm 72, or not Psalm 72, Psalm 19. I just pray, like, show me what's here. And then it just it just unfolds, and it's like that deep field photograph, and you realize there's billions and billions of sermons in here that we're not all going to do today. But it's deep, right? If you could, if you had the, whatever the Hubble equivalent is, and you could put it at the Word of God, it would go on forever, and there would be billions of truths there for you in wisdom. And it should captivate your heart. And here's the thing. It doesn't happen if that, it doesn't happen without having a knowledge of Jesus Christ and who He is and who God is. Right? If all of this is going over your head and you're thinking, this is just a dusty book, I don't care. Gideon's leave it in the hotel, whatever. You know, It's because I'm afraid Jesus hasn't captivated your heart yet. When Jesus captivates your heart and you see God as God, then His Scripture becomes beautiful to you. It is more desirable than gold. It is sweeter than drippings from the honeycomb. There is nothing you want on the earth except for His Word. When you come to know God through Jesus, this book and these words, they become the sweetest thing you ever taste. They become a lifeline. They become the sustenance of your life. They become the most valuable thing you could possibly own. And if you're not living that way, you're living in poverty. And your life must taste bitter in your mouth. But you don't have to be poor and you don't have to be bitter because there is gold and there is honey here for you in the Word of God. Anyway, I've got to wrap this up. And it all results in redemption. At the end here, he says, Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. And then shall I be blameless and innocent of great transgression. And I'd rather interpret the last one then the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. We don't know the depths of our own sin. We have hidden faults and we have sin in ways we don't even know. 
And we also still presume to sin. Knowingly we sin, presumptuously. And the text deals with both of these kinds here. The, the psalmist acknowledges, I'm sinful and, and I need you, God. Notice the request that he makes. He says, declare me innocent, acknowledging that he's not. He says, don't let them have dominion over me. He's saying, my flesh is weak. You have to do this, Lord. It's up to you to redeem me. It's up to you to count me innocent. It's up to you to protect me from my sins. And only then will I be blameless. And only then will the words of my, my words and thoughts be acceptable. When you act, Lord, when you act through the agency of your scripture, then I acknowledge you, my rock and my redeemer. And it can't be overlooked here. This is a little nugget to take away here that he calls him redeemer. God is the one who is redeeming. The psalmist is not saying, I'm going to follow all these rules and then I'll be a good person. I'm going to follow all the things that God told me and then I will be able to be counted blameless. He doesn't say that. He says, no, God, you have to do it. You have to be my redeemer. We don't need a redeemer if we're blameless. And so here the psalmist is acknowledging, I need you, God, to do it. I need you to be the redeemer. God acted. God created. God wrote. God revealed. God redeems. And as God's Word tells us faithfully, it's through His own Son, Jesus, that He redeems. The psalmist here is speaking prophetically of the Redeemer that is going to come. In the very first chapter of the New Testament, Matthew writes, She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. And in Titus, they get the benefit of looking on the other side of the cross looking for the blessed hope and the appealing, appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself to redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people of his own possession. Jesus is the redeemer that the psalmist is talking about here. He's saying, God, you have to do this. You have to redeem. So what do we take away from this? Are you as revived and wise and joyful and enlightened and clean as you would like to be? in your marriage or in your work or in your private life, in your relationships? Is God and His Word your treasure? Do you value God's Word? And do you have the awe of God and His Scripture the same way you do when you look up at the night sky? Why would you cut yourself off from such a resource that God has revealed Himself? The God of the universe has spoken to you by His Scripture. There is rejoicing and there is wisdom and there is enlightenment and there is cleanliness, and there is redemption here for you. So I encourage you, put, we got to put our own wisdom and our own traditions and our own old, you know, old wives' tales and our own cleverness and all of that stuff, and even most difficultly, we have to put our own experiences aside and we have to submit them all to the Word of God. And only then will we be wise and joyful and refreshed and clean and see clearly. Everything else that we do on our own, even what we think we've learned from our own experience is fog and confusion. And only the Word of God redeems our situation in our lives. Whatever you're facing, whatever it is in your life that you are struggling with right now, whether it's the joy thing, the wisdom thing, the enlightenment thing, the cleanliness thing, whatever it is, whether it's in your marriage, whether it's in your own mind, whether it's your self or relationships, whatever it is you're facing, or maybe it's just a general state of... of, of you know, being the, the crooked jar that Graham is, right? Like, maybe you're just feeling like this. <laughs> like, everything is just wrong, just out of sorts. The psalmist here has one orienting word for you. Get into the Word of God and get with someone who can help you with it. God never intended for you to struggle through life unaware of His glory. 
there is a reward that God expects you to have from his revelation. In it, there is much reward if you are in the word of God. Don't struggle through life unaware of his glory. Don't struggle through life unenlightened, without answers, without guidance, without joy, without cleanliness. It is here for you. It's in his word, and it's made real in your life through Jesus Christ. That's what the word of God is. That's what the psalmist has revealed to us. We have to orient ourselves 100% on the word of God, or nothing else will make any sense. Let's pray. Father God, we read this psalm and, and we really get hung up on those first few verses because it, it's, our eyes are open every day when we pull back our curtains and look out on your wonderful creation here in Halliburton. So it's easy for us to resonate with those first seven verses of just how amazing and glorious your creation is. And our hearts in us kind of well up with this desire to worship the God who made these lakes and trees and sky and stars and galaxies. And it just causes us to rejoice. But Lord, the psalmist doesn't stop at verse 7. And we have to have our heart tuned to your word, to your commandments, to your law, to your precepts. Because there is joy, there is wisdom, there is understanding, there is clarity, there is cleanliness there for us. And when we look at your word sitting there on our kitchen table or on our nightstand, our hearts need to rejoice just as they rejoice at the Milky Way in the night sky. And as we are groping around in the dark trying to find our solutions to our problems, Lord, we need to stop looking anywhere else except at your word. You have not meant for us to be left alone groping in the dark here. You've revealed yourself, your wisdom. Make us a people that cherish it, that it is better than gold, sweeter than honey, that your scripture is our, a treasure in our life. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.